Hi, this is Tom Holland, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So you got a busy weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This busy, is... busy couple of months. This is gig <laughs> three of... This is three of four and two days. How's it feel? <laughs> oh, I'm used to it. You know, I get antsy if I'm not working. <laughs> now, is it easy to be working really hard all the time here in Chicago? Um, for me it is, because I mean, I've been on the scene here for 23 years, so I've pretty much well established myself to where, you know, I don't really have to go out on the road anymore if I don't want to. I can stay home and make just as much. And and the and the thing is that you could call any place and say, hey, I, I've yeah, got yeah. And you know, I mean, I've you know, like I said, I've been out here for so long that everybody pretty much knows me, and you know, they know I'm dependable, and you know, if they want me to show up, I'm going to show up, and it's going to be a good show. <laughs> okay, so tell me about the beginning. You you grew up in the South Side of Chicago. Yeah, I yeah. should say that I'm with Tom Holland. We're in the back room at the River Roast in Chicago. It's a little noisy, but <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, so tell me about growing up in Chicago. What was that like? You know, I you know I grew up out on the South Side, and you know Chicago has always been a hotbed for blues since you know the '50s and '60s, and probably even before that. But you know, I was always into music. My dad had a record collection that rivaled like a public radio station you know it's like our house was you know our living room was you know one and a half walls of all lps you know from everything from classical jazz rock you know and was he a musician or just a, a, a he was fan? just a music i mean he played drums when he was younger but you know it wasn't a thing of you know he ever was trying to make a go of it. It was, you know, more for fun. But, you know, he's always loved music, so it, you know, trickled down to me. I'm, you know, I've got two brothers and a sister, and, you know, my youngest brother, you know, plays drums for fun. But I'm the only one that, you know, we all we all grew up loving music, but I'm the only one Because it was always you know, there. Yeah, it was always there. And... You know, I was the only one that said, oh, this is, you know, I got the bug and it wouldn't let go. <laughs> well, tell me about getting that bug. How did that happen? You know, my dad, you know, like I said, he had all kinds of music, but, you know, he was partial to R&B and blues and jazz. So that was always what he liked to play. And I saw Eddie Van Halen on MTV when I was a kid, and I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and, you know, so I got a guitar. You know, I begged my folks for a guitar for a while, and they finally got me one, and then, you know, it was, you know, maybe a month or so of, oh, this is great, and then it went under the bed. You know, the, the attention span of a 12-year-old. <laughs> so you didn't become Eddie Van Halen immediately? <laughs> no, no. You know, I was, I was maybe... 13 and I broke my index finger playing bass or baseball and 
while it was, you know, I had a little, you know, it wasn't a bad break, but, you know, I had a splint on it. And, you know, once it started healing, I was kind of, oh, maybe I'll try this guitar thing again. And that, that was pretty much it. <laughs> and at that point, are you trying to be Eddie Van Halen? or No, it was, you know, I, I took lessons for a while, you know, to get the basics, you know, down. You know, I mean, I pretty much learned everything else by ear. But it was like when I started taking lessons, you know, the blues stuff was the stuff that was, you know, that I wanted to play. You know, I realized after a few lessons, my fingers were never going to move that fast. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and like I said, it was always a thing of the R&B and blues stuff, you know, unconsciously was being, you know, soaked into my head so when I started playing music that's what I wanted to do. Okay and did you have an understanding of the history of the blues in Chicago? And oh yeah, oh the, yeah. Your proximity you to You know it? when I started playing guitar and knew that I wanted to play blues you know I started going back through my dad's record collection and you know you know learn you know Figuring out, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Jimmy Reed and all that, you know. So it's like I I went back and, you know, started from, you know, like the 50s Chicago stuff. Right. And, you know, as I, you know, as I was, you know, continued to play guitar and, you know, learning more, you know, I got, a, you know, got into the acoustic pre-war stuff. But, you know, the Chicago stuff was the stuff that... I was like, that's that's the stuff. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's like I was familiar with all of the acoustic guys, but my mind, you know, my mindset was I wanted to, I wanted, you know, it went from being wanting to be Eddie Van Halen to I want to, I want to be Muddy Waters. I want to be Hubert Sumlin, you know, and I went and, you know, and this was way before, you know, internet where you know you'd hit one button and you could learn everybody's history in 30 seconds you know but it's like I went out and found as much as I could you know would go to the library and try and you know find you know books and stuff on the history of blues and you know I mean was there was there anything that you came across way back then that just changed everything or about the blues or what you were learning about the blues and made you appreciate it even greater um you know probably you know it's it was always you know the first time i heard howling wolf i was scared to death (laughs) you know i was like i was like okay that kind of scared me kind of like that but I, I, I'm going to go back to the Muddy water stuff because that, that's, that's a little bit more, you know, the Holland Wolf stuff is a lot more raw, and the, the Muddy stuff was a little more polished. Now, I don't know your age group or, or the timing of it, but were you able to see Muddy? No, no. No, no I was, Yeah, I was, you know, I was born in 77, so, okay, right. you know, by the time I was born, Wolf had already died. You know, and by the time I started playing guitar, it was late 80s, early 90s, you know, so Muddy was already gone by then. But, you know, and the other thing, too, was, you know, growing up, even before, even before I started playing guitar, you know, every year for the Chicago Blues Fest, you know, 
my dad would drag all of us down to Grant Park. Oh, and, nice. you know. Because it always surprises me the yeah. number of people I've come across who, who play blues, who yeah. lived in Chicago, didn't really equate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, when I was when I was younger, you know, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, I didn't realize what I was, you know, around at the blues festival and all that. You know, I mean, I I can still remember seeing Brownie McGee at the blues festival and Robert Lockwood, and you know, not until way later. You know, once I started, you know, getting engrossed in the blues stuff, you know, I was like, oh, man, wait a minute. I, I, actually, I actually saw these yeah. guys and didn't really realize what I was seeing. And, you know, so, I mean, by 16, you know, 16, 17 years old, I was sneaking into the checkerboard out on the south side, you know. Are, are you playing with your friends at school? In a um, band or not? Not really, no. You know, I was, you know, the musician friends that I had growing up, you know, they were all into rock and, right. and you know, so I was, I was kind of, you know, they, they used to always, man, you, you need to listen to some of this. You need to leave that other stuff alone. So they didn't get it at all. No, no, they didn't, you know, now I see them and they're just like, man. We should listen to you when you were trying. It's like we were trying to push all that other stuff on you when you were trying to push the blues stuff on us. We should have listened back then. They finally came around. Oh yeah, yeah, you know. So, and, so at what point did you decide that this is what you wanted to pursue? You know, I honestly, I, I knew when I started playing guitar and started actually getting halfway good at it that that's what I wanted to do, to do. You know, I didn't know if it would ever come to pass, but I knew in my head that's what I wanted to do. You know, and especially once I started sneaking into the clubs, you know, it was one of those where I was just like, okay, yeah, th this is this is it for me. <laughs> what do you think it was about that experience? Like what is it about playing in the bars and playing the blues that attracted you know, I I think it was the music, you know, because, I mean, I was, you know, still a teenager. And, you know, so it's like I wasn't in the bar drinking. You know, it's like I, I'd have a Coke or a water and just sit there all night. You know, and it was kind of like, you know, a lot of the clubs that I used to sneak into on the south side. After after I started coming around and kept coming back, they all kind of, they all kind of, you know, they were like, okay, we're gonna we, we need we need to watch this. We need to shield this one from everything else that's going around him, you know. So they watched out for me, you know. Oh, tell me about that because I've heard other people refer to it, and also to the 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 South Side being a really tough area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, but this is it where was, you were. Yeah. This is where you grew up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up on the far South Side, you know maybe a couple miles from, you know, the areas where all the blues clubs used to be. Right. And, you know, those neighborhoods were really rough. I mean, looking back on it, it was probably not the smartest thing for, you know, a 15-, 16-year-old white kid to be, you know, finally get your driver's license, and the first thing you do is go drive into the, go drive into the ghetto, you know. And it was, you know, and it was one of those things, too, where it's like if my – you know, my dad probably would have been 
you probably shouldn't do that, but it's okay. Whereas my mother would have been like, you did what? (laughs) No, 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 you're not taking our car anymore. (laughs) You want to drive somewhere, we'll drive with you. But nothing ever happened. No, no. I saw a lot of people getting shot, that type of thing. I mean, I never had any of it myself, but, you know, it was, you know, it was mostly outside of the club. Right. Which is why, you know, the people, you know, the people, the bartenders and, you know, in the bars, you know, as soon as they saw me come in, they were on me like, you don't go outside. You don't. You just sit right there. And when you want to leave, you let us know and we will make sure you get to your car and you will get out of here in one piece. And did you find that scary at all? At the time, no, because I I didn't know any better. I was a teenager. I thought, you know, I was I thought I was invincible, you know. <laughs> and it's like now, you know, it's like I'll look back on that and go, man, that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But okay, so tell me what you learned from going to these bars and watching these musicians, and if you can name me some of the people you, you went know, to see. I, you know, I I saw Magic Slim and the Teardrops. Those were that was probably the first band that I saw at the checkerboard. You know, and that was when it was John Primer and Nick Holton. I think it was Earl Howell was playing drums with them at the time. I had really gotten to like Magic Slim stuff. So, you know, when I found out that, you know, because this was before he had moved to Lincoln. So, you know, I would go down to the checkerboard Sundays and Mondays and just hang out all night and just sit and watch. And, you know, a lot of the times it was... You know, Slim would just sit at the bar and let John, you know, just lead the band through, you know, and if there if there was nobody there, you know, if there were maybe five or ten people there, you know, Slim wouldn't play, you know, he'd play one song all night, you know, and he'd just, after every song, he'd lean over and, and just put his finger up, okay, John, one more, <laughs> and, you know, and it would just keep going and going, and then, like, you know, he'd get up, sing one song. All right, the band's going on a break because I'm thirsty. And he'd go back to the bar, you know. And so it was, you know, for me, that was, you know, that was my first real, you know, I mean, because that was where I was would sneak into because I knew they, as long as I, you know, I'd bring a guitar with knowing full well I had no business getting up on that stage. And... And I usually wouldn't, but they, you know, they'd see me come in with a guitar, so they wouldn't, you know, they'd be, oh, he's a musician, let him in. Wow. You know. So they were very accommodating. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I, you know, once I, you know, was hanging out at the checkerboard a lot, then, you know, then I was like, you know, I'd hear, you know, John or Slim, you know, oh, well, we're playing at Blues on Halstead. Oh, we're playing at, you know, Kingston Mines. You should come up there. And I, I learned real quick going up to the North Side clubs that it wasn't like the South Side. <laughs> okay, explain that. Tell me why it was so. Oh, dumb. they they knew I was underage, and they were like, "No, you're you're <laughs> you can stand outside and listen all you want, but you're not getting in this club." <laughs> and so I was like, "Well, I'll just wait for them to come back to the checkerboard," <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, you know, it's like I, you know, I saw Slim down there and Primer, uh, LV Banks. Both of those yeah. two people yeah. 
you wound up playing with. And, yeah, I ended up, it was funny because when I finally gotten up, gotten up enough nerve to start asking to sit in, um, L.V. Banks was hanging out at the checkerboard one night, and apparently, you know, he, you know, he thought it was all right, and so I started, you know, he, he, he was like, oh, I want you to work with me. I want you to, well, I'm, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I, at first I was kind of like, I really want to, but I just can't do it right now. You know, it was more of a thing of, I, I can't, uh, I can't cover this one up. You know, I can't cover up going out on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. You know, I can't say, oh, I'm going over to so-and-so's house to do homework or study or whatever, or, you know. You know, Sundays and Mondays were, you know, I don't even remember what I had told my parents I was doing. But, you know, there was never any question of it. But I'm like, okay, but I can't really keep doing this, like, all the time on different days. Because right. then yeah. they're going to start thinking, then they're, they're going to catch on sooner or later. And uh, Buddy Guy's keyboard player, Marty Salmon, we grew up together. And, you know, we had started, we had started playing, you know, playing, you know, hanging out and playing music and stuff. And he had actually gotten a gig with LV. And so he was like, hey, man, I got this gig with LV Banks. And he says he knows you. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, he's been trying to hire me, but I just haven't figured out a way to get, get all the stars to align so I could do it. How old were you? Uh, 18. So you so say yeah. grade 12? Hmm? You're in grade 12? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, was, it was like right before I graduated high school. And so he starts playing with LV during the summer at this beauty salon. Yeah, explain that. So it's a beauty salon. It's it was it was a it was a big storefront beauty salon where they had like a little raised section in the middle. Right. Where they'd clear the they'd clear the the, the chairs and you know set the band up in the middle. You know I I forget. If. So, but this is going on after hours. Oh no, this is going on. There's there's the there's salon. ladies getting their hair done. You know, and I think it was something where either LV or his drummer knew the owner, and they like knew they liked music, and you know, so LV ended up playing at this beauty salon, and so I was like, well, well, this is this is the this is my inn. I'm going to hang out with Marty. <laughs> I'm going to hang out with Marty. Okay. So, what time are you playing? Like what? It what? W- well, it, and well, and that was the other thing. It was it was like from six to ten. Okay. So it was you know it was early enough to where you know. You know it was early enough to where you know it's like, no one was you know, it there was never any question. Well, where are you going? I'm going to hang out with Marty. Oh, okay. Well, he's a nice boy, you know. <laughs> and so you know. I started, you know, playing with them down at the, you know, at that time I, ju- I was just, I would just come down and hang out. Marty was on the gig and right. I would just, you know, sit in and, you know, halfway through the summer, then LV's like, well, hey man, 
I got this gig at this other little bar on the south side, and my regular guitar player doesn't want to do it because he's busy. And, you know, and I, you know, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it, you know. So, and it was maybe a mile and a half from where, where my folks lived. So it was, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's like, oh, that's like, that's like 10 minutes. <laughs> no, that's okay. And, you know, and I came to find out that his other guitar player didn't want to do it because it wasn't paying hardly any money, you know, but again, I'm just coming on to the scene and, you know, I don't know what the pay scale is supposed to be, you know, and it's like, but, you know, it's, I looked at it as, well, that, that's the do, paying dues thing, right. you know. Right. And, you know, so, you know, so I, I worked with LV at a couple of little bar, you know, whenever his other, whenever the, he wasn't paying enough for the other guitar player to want to do it, I'd get a phone call and go do the gig. And, and so, you know, and at the same time, you know, Slim had moved to Lincoln and John was doing Sundays and Mondays. So I was still hanging, you know, so now I'm just going to hang out. And, you know, I, you know, by that time I was, you know, I had enough nerve to, you know, bother John about, hey, man, let me sit in, let me sit in, let me sit in. So, you know, so I'd go down every Sunday and Monday. And again, Marty had gotten a gig from playing with LV with John. And so Marty and I would go to the checkerboard and Marty, you know, Marty went a couple times. Then he was just like, yeah, man, he's like, I really, I really, this is really cool, man. But yeah, I don't know about this coming into this neighborhood all the time. I'm like, "Ah, it's fine. It's fine. They'll look out for us. So, you know, he, you know, he came down a couple times, you know, we went down there a couple times together and then I just would keep going back down there. And after a couple of months of sitting in with John, um, he had a gig in one of the suburbs. And he's like, hey, man, I, hey, can you do a gig on this Thursday at whatever place? I'm like, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll meet at the checkerboard, and then we'll all drive out there together. Okay, cool. And, and so I went out and did the gig, and... That was, you know, after the first set, John was like, you know, John pulled me to the side and he goes, all right, I, I have a few questions. I'm like, okay. And he's like, what drug, how, how much do you drink? What drugs do you do? And if I need you, will you show up? <laughs> I think this is after the first gig. Yeah, this oh, is at, well, during the first gig. During the first gig in between sets. Okay. And I was like, I don't drink on gigs. I, I, I don't do any drugs. And if you need me, call me. And that ended up, you know, so I ended up playing with John from there for almost three years, you know. So you must have impressed him in the first yeah, set. Yeah, yeah, you know. And, you know, and it was one of those where I think John also, you know, saw that I really loved this music and was very eager to learn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think it was a thing of, you know, he was in his mind maybe looking at it as you know i'm gonna teach this kid how to play it the right way <laughs> you know okay so from a non-musical person's point of view i look at john primer and i think and i i can't say for sure but i think yeah. that's what i imagine 
the closest thing to muddy waters would be. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Right? Like Definitely. I just I don't know if anybody else, maybe Lori Bell, but yeah, yeah. But basically, John Primer to me would be what I would imagine seeing. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, and that was one of the things, too, in, in my mind, it was like, you know, I started playing with them, and I was like, you know, then it started clicking, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is how the... He he was there. Yeah, yeah. You know, he played with Muddy. He played with Willie Dixon. There's you know? the connection. He played, you know, he played in all of these little clubs like Teresa's and, you know, played with Cotton, played with Junior Wells. You know, he was in the house band at Teresa's. So, you know, anybody that would pass through there, he was playing with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, so after I kind of figured out what, you know, the situation I was in, it was like, you know, then it became ears open all the time and, you know, just soak everything in and try not to mess it up. <laughs> can you can you talk to what you might have learned? Like is it can you quantify what you the lesson you might have learned from oh, yeah. oh, I'm, John Primer? I can from John Primer, you know, and that was that was one of the things after I had been playing with them for a while. You know, once once he made it very clear that I was in his band, I wasn't just the fill-in guy. You know, we were on the road somewhere, on the East Coast somewhere, and, you know, we're driving in the van, everybody else is asleep, and, you know, John's driving and I'm, you know, in the passenger's front seat. And, you know, he looks at me, he goes... Before you leave this band, he's like, you're going you're, you're gonna to know how to do at least two things. And I was like, okay, what's that? And he's like, you're going to know how to play behind anybody in any situation, and you're going to play slide. <laughs> and I was like, I can go with the first one. And, you know, at the time, you know, I never really messed around with slide outside of, you know, at home, just messing around with it. And I was... I never thought of myself as a slide guitar player, you know, and John was like, he's like, no, 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 you, you will learn how to play slide. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to play slide before you're out of this band. Right. And after that conversation for like the next probably six, seven months, every gig, you know, he'd take one or two songs where, you know, it would be like a slow, muddy tune or whatever. And, you know, he'd take a solo and then look at me and put his pinky finger up. You know, like, all right, now it's your turn. You play slide. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. And he's like, yes. I'm like, no, no, no. And then he'd lean over. If you want to get paid for this gig, you better put that slide on. And it was like, okay, I'm going to put the slide on. And I'd fumble through it. But he's not showing you how to do things. Well, at the the first couple times, no. You know, it was in, you know, John was one of those old school guys where, you know, he's always kind of like, you, you learn how to do this by listening. Don't watch me. Mm-hmm. He's like, you figure it out with your ears, and then it'll all come together. And, 
so, you know, he wouldn't, you know, so it would be, you know, I'd fumble through the solo and he just kind of, I'd get done with it and he'd just kind of look at me and giggle and just, you know, <laughs> and just go, and just go, now watch, you know, all right, are you listening? And just, you know, just be like, oh man, oh God. <laughs> and there, there was one trip we played in Philadelphia at, I think it was Warm Daddy's. And the hotel they put us up in, it was one of those hotels where it was like the rooms were just big suites. Mm-hmm. So they had, you know, so I think we got two big suites, you know, two beds in each suite. Right. So, you know, John knew this coming in. So, you know, we're checking in and he grabs me. He goes, me and Tom are rooming because he didn't want to room with anybody else in the band. <laughs> Either he didn't want to room with anybody else in the band that was in the band at the time, or he didn't want me rooming with him. But either way, so, you know, we go do the gig, and after the gig, you know, we're both wide awake. You know, just the adrenaline from playing, you know, you know, it's one of those things you can't go right to sleep. Right. So, you know, we sat up, and he's like, all right, I'm going to show you some slides. And we sat up, and, you know, he was actually, you know, sitting across, you know, we're sitting across from each other on, you know, in the room, and he's showing me how to do this and do that, you know. Was that helpful? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, and it was funny because he's like, no, I don't want you to just keep playing all this stuff all the time. You need to come up with, you don't need to be, John Primer's already here. You don't need to be another. He's like, you take what I'm showing you and you make it your own. Right. You know, and. But what a cool thing to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, you know, again, at that time, I was maybe 20. And, you know, so it's like none of that is really registering in my head, you know, like, hey, he's taking the time to show you (laughs) what, you know, Muddy or Sammy Lawhorn had showed him, you know, and so, I mean, later on, I was like, oh, so that's why he did it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there's, there's been, a, like, a lot of the er, my early years, you know, coming up on the scene, you know, it took about 10, 15, 10 years or so before I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. So did you ever have any resistance of you wanting to follow this pursuit, this dream? Um, not really, you know. The musicians were all welcoming. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, I mean, there. I'm sure there were a lot of them that would smile in my face, and then as soon as I was gone, they'd talk all kinds of everything about me, but, you know, that's, that's going to happen. It. Yeah, that's going to happen either way. But, you know, I never felt any kind of animosity from any of the other players, in Chicago or, you know, being out on the road, you know, it was, you know, people, you know, they're like, well, you, you've learned your lessons well. So, you know, we can't really discount you for anything because you're out here doing it. Whereas a lot of other guys don't have, you know, don't either have the ambition or the drive or just don't want to be bothered with it Mm -hmm. and you know I mean it's you know I I started playing with John when I was 18 or 19 
So by the time at your 20, you're sitting in the, the suite with John yeah. showing you what to do. You're thinking, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Or oh, you're yeah. just thinking, this is what I'm doing right now? Oh, no. I mean, I, I, I knew once, well, I knew once John decided to actually have me in the, as a part of the band and not just, you know, like a filling guy. I knew right then. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, all my chips are in this bag. You know, I'm done with beauty salons. Yeah, yeah, no more beauty salons for me. We're we're gonna we're you know we're gonna we're, I'm I'm gonna stay in the places that actually sell the booze legally. <laughs> you know, because and that was the funny thing with the beauty salon gig. You know, oh, it's a beauty booze? salon, but the owner, you know, the owner, you know, after like the first first or second time we played down there. The owner's like, okay, so next week when y'all show up, what do you want to drink? <laughs> you know, and Marty and I are like, um, uh, I, I don't know. And you know, the drummer, the drummer's like, they will take, they will take Jack Daniels and some Budweiser. <laughs> They're not ready for Tangeray yet. That'll be by the end of the summer. <laughs> you know, because the drummer, you know, the drummer always had, you know. He'd walk in the door, they'd hand him a fifth of Tang Array, and he was happy, he was a happy camper, you know. So by the time you finished your run with John, John Primer, were you now somebody who, obviously you play with other people as well, but now were you in demand, or? You know, when I started playing, you know, when I, by the time I was almost out of John's band, um, I mean, I had pretty much started to establish myself on the scene. And, you know, a lot of the older guys that were still alive knew that I could play the old stuff really well. So, you know, they would all call me, you know. And, you know, you know, but I it was one of those where playing with John, you know, when I, you know, it's at that time, you know, if you were in a band, everybody, you know, this was when you could still be in one band right. and be able to make, you know, decent money. You know, whereas now, you know, you've got to play with five different people just to have enough gigs to... When did you see that change? Probably when I was working with Eddie Clearwater. So what? What you? This is when I met you. Yeah, in about yeah. Two thousand and three or something. Yeah, like it was. Well, I was about because I played with Eddie. From I want to say two thousand to two thousand three, somewhere along okay. there. And what did that? What did the invitation of playing with Eddie Clearwater mean to you? I, honestly, when I got into Eddie's band, you know, I was still playing with John. And for whatever reason, John wasn't getting a lot of gigs. You know, whether that was his own decision or whatever. Right. But Eddie's bass player at the time was a friend of mine. And, you know, he was like, hey, look, I know you're playing with John, but I know John's not really working that much. Eddie's guitar player is leaving, and he needs a guitar player. It's like, I told Eddie, you know, I told Eddie about you, 
and I gave him your number, so, you know, he's probably, him or his wife will be calling you probably, you know, fairly soon. And so, you know, I mean, that was, that was probably two or three months before I ended up joining his band, you know, and then one day Eddie called me and he was like, look, I got I got a gig at Blue Chicago. I got your name from the bass player. He says you're pretty good. He's like, so the the ba- he's like, so the guitar player's leaving, and I'm thinking about hiring a guitar player and a keyboard player. And would you be interested? So I was like, sure, yeah. You know, I, you know, John's not, you know. I think at that time, John was, you know, one or two gigs in Chicago. You know, like, I think he was playing mostly, like, Kingston Mines and Buddy Guys. Right. Those were, you know, the, the, big, the big gigs that he was doing. I mean, we were still doing Sundays and Mondays at the checkerboard, but it was like half the time that was, you know, at, at most we'd make $20 a day, you know, $20 a night if there were people in there. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the times it was get down there and there's nobody there at 10:30 and it's like all right go home hmm. and here's here's five dollars gas money see you next week and so so i started you know so i was like okay well do you want to do any rehearsals or anything like that and he's like no 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 he's like here are the here are my records that i do most of my material off of go find those records and learn the songs <laughs> okay. He doesn't even give me the records. No, you know, he didn't tell me what songs. He just right. said, just listen to all these records. And know them. And know them. Right. And, you know, and it was okay. And, of course, you know, the first gig he played maybe three songs off of, like, the four records he gave me. <laughs> and that's like, okay. okay. I'm like, oh, this is, this is that game that the old blues guys like to play where we're going to rehearse all this stuff, and then on the gig we're not playing any of it. <laughs> So, you know, so I started doing some gigs with Eddie at that point. And, you know, I was still working with John. You know, it was, it was, it was nice because Eddie, Eddie's gigs and John's gigs never, they never, you know, never conflicted. Wow. So that was, I realized I was, you know, looking back at it, I was like, man, that, that was kind of a stroke of luck because that never happens. And and at this point, you're starting to do your own stuff. Too, yeah. Right? At this point, I'm you know I'm you know I'm doing like little neighborhood bars in the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, just trying to see if I could actually do it. And that's all that's motivating, or are you thinking one day that's what I want to be doing? One oh, I was definitely thinking you know one day this is what I'm going to be doing, you know, but I also knew I had to crawl before I could walk. <laughs> and, and was make that a sure, make sure adjustment? That, you know, when I started playing with John, I never was singing, you know, it's like I knew, uh, you know, I knew how to play a bunch of songs and this and that, but I, you know, never tried to sing any of them, you know, and when I started playing with John, he was like, hey, oh, by the way, do you sing? I said, not really. He goes, well, you're going to learn. <laughs> and, you know, so I started, you know, when I started playing with John, you know, I'd do two or three songs before, 
he'd come up every night, you know, so it's like, you know, you know, it was the old being, you know, frying pan into the fire type of thing where it was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to learn how to do this. You know, and that was one of the other things John always said. He's like, guitar players are a dime a dozen. Guitar players that can sing and can actually do that, that's how you're going to stay busy. Right. <laughs> because if it's just going on guitar alone, there's a hundred guitar players in Chicago and, you know, they all play different and band leaders have, you know, they have their favorites of who they want to get and it's just a matter of who's available to do, you know, certain gigs and that kind of thing. So, you know, so once I got over the initial shock of, oh, I have to sing, <laughs> I guess I better start learning some songs. I bet I better learn some of these words, you know. So it was like once I, you know, once I started to get comfortable doing that, you know, I mean, it wasn't much of a transition for me, you know, because <laughs> the gigs I was doing on my own, you know, were barely paying any money anyways. And it was one of those things where, you know, I, I knew what my schedule was with, say, John or with Eddie, so... You know, I had learned early on that most places when you're in a touring band have their, you know, they book out a couple of months. So it's like, you know, if you know where you've got open dates, you can, you know, go get a, a gig at the corner bar or whatever. And so, I mean, that's that's how I did all of that, you know. But there's a difference between doing that, yeah. even though it's under your name yeah, yeah. to establishing your name and getting bigger yeah, gigs yeah. and playing to other places. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in that respect, I mean, I I was just doing gigs around Chicago to build up, you know, the songs that I can sing and, you know, figuring eventually if I stick with these bands that are going out on the road, you know, being out on the road with these guys will get my name out get my face seen and be able to you know at some point down the line be able to be doing that myself right and you know you know playing with you know playing with Eddie and John was you know was good for me in terms of Chicago because you know it was like oh okay well the young guy can actually play and sing <laughs> You know, and then, you know, so that was one of those where I was looking at it going, oh, I might be able to play it, buddy, guys. I might be able to play it a Blue Chicago or Blues on Halstead or, you know, Kingston Mines or Rosas. And, you know, I learned real quick that there's politics behind all of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for those of us who don't know about the politics, what does that mean? Well, like in Chicago... Like, all of the big blues clubs are, you know, with the exception of maybe Rosa's. You know, like Buddy Guys, Blue Chicago, Kingston Mines and Blues, you know, they're long-established clubs that cater to the tourists. Right. So in the mindset of the club owners is, well, the tourists want to see blues and 
to a tourist, blues is, you know, if he's not an old black guy, it's a black guy fronting the band with maybe some white guys in the band. Right. But it, it's never a white guy fronting the band. You know, I mean, now, you know, the, you know, the scene has, you know, shifted a lot, you know, in Chicago and all over to where, you know, a lot of it now is, you know, who you know type of thing. And, but like back then, you know, it was, I learned real quick that I'm young, I play guitar and I wear a cowboy hat. So the club owners, you know, and I'll never forget when I was playing with Eddie, you know, Eddie worked a good amount when we were in town at Blue Chicago. And I mean, I started playing at Blue Chicago when I was working with John, but you know, I never really met the owner at all until I started working with Eddie. Because, you know, Eddie and the owner had known each other for, you know, since he opened the club initially in the late 80s. Right. And so I started to get to know, you know, the, you know, the owner and all that. And he had hired my band for a couple of private parties. And, and one of the private parties we did... You know, he had he had no problem hiring me for private parties. But if it were a thing of hiring me for like a night at the club, it was never gonna happen. Wow. And you know, and he told me, you know, I was maybe twenty three, twenty two, and he was like, Look, he's like, I appreciate that you want a gig at my club. You're a really good musician, but until all the all the old black guys are gone, you're you're gonna have to wait. How did you feel about that? Oh, that, you know, I was just like, that's okay. I'm young. I can wait. <laughs> you know. Did was, you understand that? I you logic? know I I understood it, and you know, and I was you know I I had my smart aleck remark ready ready, and as soon as he said it, I spouted my little smart aleck remark. And in the back of my head going, oh, this is, this is no good. Mm-hmm. You know, I put my pants on just like the rest of them do. <laughs> but, you know, so the politics of it, you know, I mean, it's still, it's still fairly heavy in Chicago. And most of the, you know, it's like legends now, they, you know, it's a lot of the places now have turned over to where, you know, if you're a white band leader, you know, you can get a gig here. You know, just because a lot of the older black uh, band leaders that were playing in these clubs are all dying. And a lot of the younger black band leaders, you know, there aren't that many of them. Right. You know, and, you know, certain certain clubs want blues. They don't want funk. They don't want R&B. They want blues, you know. So in that respect, I've been able to keep working because, you know, I tend to play more traditional Chicago blues, you right. know, like Muddy Wolf, you know, Magic Slim, Earl Hooker, all that kind of stuff. Did you ever not want to do this, or did you ever question doing what you do? 
I probably did, but, you know, it was, I've always had enough work to where I could at least eke out a, you know, enough money to survive. Okay, so, and then, you know, the fact that you played with people like John Primer. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and Eddie Clearwater, and then came James Cotton. Yeah, yeah. So, I would imagine nothing against the other two, but playing with Cotton would be... Oh yeah, yeah. Above. It was, it was, you know, it was definitely, uh, you know, looking back at it, it was definitely, you know, getting into, you know, getting into the road bands. It was, you know, it was training for the next step, you know, and you know, playing with Cotton was, you know, pretty much being at the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. What know? did you learn from that experience? You know, I've I've pretty much learned something from every band that I've been on the road with. You know, with Cotton, you know, Cotton was more than anything, it was, you know, keep the energy, keep it high energy. And, I mean, because with Cotton, I mean, it was from the first note out of the gate, it was, you know... It was high energy, up-tempo, and, you know, throw a slow blues in there in the middle of it, you know, to just like, okay, let's give everybody a little break and then just punch them them in the chest, (laughs) you know. It's like, okay, we've lulled them into a false sense of security. Okay, here comes the next one. And, you know, it's like back on the horse. And, you know, I mean, I was with James for 12 years, and... When I first started playing with James, I got the call from his manager at the time. My wife and I were in Times Square in New York on a vacation. It was right before Halloween. And he, you know, so we're, you know, walking around Times Square on, I think it was on Halloween. And, you know, my cell phone rings and I didn't recognize the number, but I answered it anyways. it's like, oh, this is James Cotton Management. Uh, we got your number from, we got your number from a number of different people, and uh, we need a guitar player to go to the West Coast for three weeks. And I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm in. Like, are you surprised at all? Oh yeah, you know. Well, I mean, it I was mean, what, like, was there any indication that this would happen? In no, no, there was no. You know, I knew. When I joined the band, um, his other the other guitar player was uh, it was I was taking Rico McFarland's place, and the other guitar player was Slam Allen, and Slam had moved to Chicago maybe a year before I get the call from Cotton, and we had worked together in Chicago okay. in a couple of different bands, so it's like we kind of knew each other. And, you know, every time I'd see Slam before, you know, before that, I'd be like, hey, man, if Cotton ever needs a guitar player, man, you know, I, hey, I'm your guy. You know, so it was, you know, kind of hard selling him every time I'd see him <laughs> to where I'm sure by, you know, a lot of the times he knew if he, if he didn't know I was on the gig, he'd show up and go, oh, God, he's going to go back on about, about if, I need, <laughs> if Cotton needs a guitar player. You know, because it was, you know... Because when I was, you know, I was playing with Eddie, and I quit playing with Eddie 
right before I got married. And, you know, at that point, I had been playing with Eddie for almost three or four years. And I was kind of getting burned out on the road. So I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm stepping back and just kind of trying to get reestablished right. locally, you know, trying to make a push with my own band. And so, so Cotton's manager calls me and, and he's like, yeah, we need a guitar player for, for this tour of the West Coast. I'm like, okay, I'm in. He's like, oh, when, when, I'm like, okay, so when are we leaving? I said, are we driving or flying? He goes, oh, we're driving. I'm like, okay, when do we leave? And he's like, November 2nd, and it's October 31st. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, daytime or night, uh, well, I'll pick you, we'll pick you up at midnight. Perfect. <laughs> See you then. And we got back from our vacation in New York, November 2nd at like four in the afternoon. And by midnight, I was jumping in a van with a bunch of guys I had never met before, or, well, that I had never played with before, didn't know that well. You know, I mean, I knew Slam a little bit, but, you know, not, you know, it's like just from playing on gigs with them. Right. So, you know, I'm jumping in a van with all these guys, you know, and Cotton was, at that time, you know, he had, he had already moved to Austin. So, you know, he would fly out to the first gig and the band would drive out and pick him up at whatever airport was closest. So... Here I am, you know, not even home for 12 hours from vacation yet, jumping into a van and driving across the country for three weeks. <laughs> and we were, we were driving, and we were probably halfway through Nebraska or something like that. And I was, I was riding in the passenger seat in the front seat, and we're driving along, and the manager just looks at me, turns the music down, and, or turns the radio down, and just looks at me and goes, you didn't even ask how much the gig was paying, where we were going. You just said yes. And I just looked at him. I said, I don't know how long you've been James's manager. But when I said, I'm sure you understand that when James Cotton calls, you don't say no. And he's like, I like that in you. He's like, you're a smart, you're, you're kind of smart there, fella. And then he's like, okay, well, here's a bunch of Cotton CDs. We're going to listen to them in the van. Everybody in the van, everybody, everybody else in the van, oh, no, I don't want to listen to this again. And... You know, we listened to a couple of things. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, nothing to worry about. I got this. He's like, no, no, no. Some of this, this isn't your regular run-of-the-mill blues stuff. There's, there's stops and there's, it's, you know, it's not that it's complicated, but it's just some, you know, there's some strange, you know, some strange arrangements or whatever. I'm like, that's fine. I got this. Don't worry about it. And we did the first gig, and at the end of the night, we're all sitting, we're sitting around waiting to get paid. The manager's coming around and paying everybody. And he gets to me, hands me my, my pay, and he's like, huh, you know, usually the new guys we have to yell at and tell them they did everything wrong. He's like, you just did that gig like you've been playing with James for 20 years. 
And I said, well, I told you, I, I've been listening to, you know, Cotton stuff, whether it was his stuff, you know, after he left Muddy's band or the stuff he did with Muddy. I said, I've been playing this stuff since I've started playing guitar. You know, he's like, yeah, well, I realize that now. He goes, yeah, well, you know, he's like, not, not to put a feather in your cap or anything, but, you know, before we decided to call you, you know, we did some research, and we called a bunch of people, and everybody had glowing, re you know, reports about you. He's like, I guess they were all right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so that first tour, you know, it was three weeks, and... You know, I was, you know, when I got in the van to drive out to the West Coast, the manager's like, now listen, this is, you're filling in. If it, if it goes well, you might, you know, James might keep you around. He's like, but don't set your expectations really high. And what do you're, you think? You're, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, I got this. <laughs> this is the gig I've been working for. And, you know, so he was, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm coming into this with no expectations at all. I'm just happy, to, you know, because at the time I hadn't been out on the road in probably a couple of years. <laughs> For me, mostly, I was just like, I'm just glad to be back out on the road again. <laughs> I started, I was starting to miss being on the road all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, so the manager was drilling into my head that you're just the fill-in guy. You're just the fill-in guy. And I'm like, well, that's fine. I'm the filling guy, but I'm still giving it 150% at all times. Right. And halfway through the tour, we were playing a we were we were playing somewhere in California, and he throws me a solo, and I start playing some like Luther Tucker or Robert Lockwood thing, and he swung around in his chair. His eyes were all big, just like whoa. <laughs> oh, what's the, oh my oh wow! We got done with the gig and the whole tour. He was I was hey new guy hey you hey buddy hey guy <laughs> hey you you know he could never remember my name because it's a complicated name yeah 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 you know you know I'm the filling guy so he didn't feel yeah. it was necessary to learn my name just make sure he gets his money and if he and make sure he doesn't do anything stupid so. After that gig where, you know, he, he swung around in his chair, he's like, hey, new guy, come here. What's your name again? <laughs> I said, no, Tom Holland. Well, Tom Holland, you got a job until you don't want it anymore. I didn't know people still played like that. Wow. And I was like, I said, ah. he goes, yeah, John Primer said he taught you everything he knows. Yeah, you learned a little too well. <laughs> And that was, you know, after that, that was pretty much, I was there for 12 years. Wow. You know. How'd that make you feel when he told you that? Oh, I was, I was excited because I'm like, you know, I'm not a harp player, but this is kind of one of my heroes, and he just told me that I'm really good. You know. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, huh, maybe this wasn't a bad idea to be a musician. <laughs> And you did well for 12 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, saw saw the world, you know. And, you know, and, you know, by the last maybe year or so that I was playing with Cotton, you know, he was kind of, 
I think he kind of knew in his mind that he was getting to the point where he's either going to be slowing down almost altogether or just stopping right. or, you know, seeing, you know, because by, by the last year I had been in the band, you know, Pine Top had passed away. You know, there was that year mm-hmm. where Pine Top passed away, Hubert, Mojo, and Willie Smith all died within, you know, six months of each other. Yeah. And that would, those were all the Cotton's closest friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think after they died, he started thinking, oh, I'm, I'm like the last of, I'm the last one alive. If, you know, if they're all dying, maybe I'm not far behind them. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's what he was thinking or, but for whatever reason, he was kind of like, look, you know, you need to, you need to start doing your own thing a lot more. You need to start, you need to. He actually told you this. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, he was like, I'd love to keep you around as long as I can. He's like, but you're getting to the point now where you're starting to outgrow this band and you need to get out there and do it yourself. And, you know, and so you know, I was, of course, you know, kind of like, oh, okay. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, not you know, I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. No, no. I'm like, I know, I know you're not trying to push me out, but you know, I, you know, never looked at it, you know, and I mean, looking back on it now, it's like he, I think he knew it was time to you know. And when you think about all that he's gone through. Oh, yeah. You know, right, which is and, ridiculous. Well, because when I left the band was right when he started getting sick and canceling yeah. more shows than he was doing. Right. You know, and so, you know, I think after I left, he maybe did two or three band shows. You know, I think he did maybe a handful of, you know, special guest spots. Right. But, you know... After I left, he pretty, you know, he pretty much didn't do any other gigs with the James Cotton band. You know, just because his health was starting to fail and I think his doctors were probably like, you know, yeah, I think you need, you know, you're not in any shape to be, mm-hmm. you know, going out on the road as much as you have been or want to be. And so, you know, I mean, but yeah, when I left, I mean, he did maybe two or three other gigs. And, you know, so it was, you know, that was, and that was the thing. When I, when I quit Cotton's band, everybody in Chicago was like, you did what? <laughs> why did, why would you, why would you quit that gig? And I'm like, well, I've got a wife and a kid. And... I can't keep taking gigs with him, you know, blocking out, you know, all of this time to do these gigs with him, and then he cancels, you know, and then he can't do the gigs, and then I'm left with half a month of no work because, you know, everything's all booked up, you know, and I'm like, and plus he told me that I need to start doing my own thing more, (laughs) you know, so... Has that been difficult? Oh yeah, you know, I mean it's you know, it's it's rewarding, but you know, 
when you're doing all of it by, you know, when you're doing all of your own booking and everything, you know, 90% of your day is, you know, you know, cold calls or, and just getting rejected all the time. Right. You know, but, you know, for me, you know, I'm just, I'm just happy that I can still, you know, that I can get gigs at all anyways. Right. You know, cause I mean, it's, you know, the, the scene has, you know, completely flipped in Chicago where it used to be, you could go out, you know, and hear, you know, the real blues stuff, you know, seven nights a week. And now, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people have told me that, you know, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're one of the veterans of the scene. And you, you know, you're one of the only guys that's playing the traditional stuff anymore. Everybody else wants to play funk and R and B. And like, we know if we come see you, we're going to get a blues show, right. you know, and, you know, but it's like, you know, a lot of it now is more rockier and, you know, funkier type of stuff. That's, you know, that's what's selling. Will but you change or would you like, how would you post this? My mindset is, you know, it's worked for me all, you know, it's worked for me for all this time and, you know, I've, you know, kind of cut out a little niche for myself as, you know, the go-to guy for, you know, traditional blues. And, you know, I mean, I can play funkier stuff. I can, you know, I can play R&B and all of that, you know, but it's just like, it doesn't do anything for me musically like playing traditional Chicago blues does. And does it worry you that that might disappear? Or do you think it'll never disappear? It will probably, you know, I mean, it'll disappear in the fact that, you know, the guys that were there, like, you know, Primer and Magic Slim and Buddy Guy and Howlin' Wolf and all those, you know, it's, it's dying in the respect that they're dying. And, you know, so it's more of a thing now where, you know, it's more on me that I'm carrying on what they taught, you know, what Muddy and those guys taught them and then what they're teaching me. And it's not, you know, it's not going to be the same traditional blues per se, but, you know, you know, in that respect, you know, the traditional blues that everyone thinks is traditional blues is, yeah, it's dying because all the guys that are playing it are dying because, you know, they're getting old. And, you know, so, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I, I sat on stage with the, you know, I played on stage with all these guys and, you know, so it's kind of, you know, kind of being passed down to me to make sure that, what they taught me gets taught to, you know, the next generation and such. And are you seeing the next generation coming to you? Like, are they young kids? It's, you know, it's a couple, it's been a couple of years now that, you know, right around the time that I left Cotton's band, when I was in town, you know, once I got off the road with Cotton, I was pretty much, you know, okay, I need to take another break from the road. 
you know, 12 years was a long time. Because <laughs> it's such a glamorous film. It, it, it is sunshine and lollipops. <laughs> you know, but when, so when I got off the road, I'd start getting, you know, I started, you know, the newer guys that were coming on the scene would all start show, you know, they'd show up at a gig here or there. And it was, oh, well, so-and-so told me I have to come talk to you because you, you've been out on the road and you know how this business is. And you're not going to sugarcoat anything. You're going to tell me exactly what I need to hear, whether I want to hear it or not. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's been happening for, you know, three, four years now. So I'm going to have to wrap this up. But my final question to you, I mean, you've played with, the greats, yeah, and they've taught you, and you're carrying on the tradition. Yeah, what what is it? Do you think? What is it about you? Do you think that Cotton saw in you, Eddie Clearwater saw in you, Primer saw in you? What was it that they respected you for? That I respected the music, that I respected them, and that I, on the one hand, I knew it was a business but that that I love you know I love to play and I think they saw that you know not only was I absorbing everything but I you know genuinely like to play and I mean people still you know people joke about it today with me they're like You've been out. You've been out here for that long, and how do you still walk around and with a smile on your face? Most guys that have been playing for as long as you have, you know, with the caliber of musician or you know the role, you know, touring experience, most of them are all jaded and angry and don't want to be bothered. And I'm like, because I love it, you know. I learned early on if you're gonna survive, you've got to have really thick skin. And thankfully, my skin is really thick in that respect. And, you know, I don't look at it as a job. You know, a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot of guys come and go in the time that I've been on the scene that figured this is a quick way to make some money. And within six months, they're the jaded, angry Mm -hmm. person that doesn't want to play anymore or, you know, the latest flash in the pan type of thing, you know, the flavor of the month, and then once they're not the flavor of the month anymore, you never see them again. And it's like, well, I've been out here because I treat everybody with respect, I respect the music, and I love to play, (laughs) you know. I'm like, that's served me very well in, you know, all the time I've been playing. It's like, Sure, there are, I mean, there were plenty of times when I was playing with Cotton where, you know, the van would break down and we'd be stuck in the middle of Pennsylvania in an Amish town. <laughs> a white guy and a van full of black guys. The black guys are all scared to get out of the hotel room because it's Amish people and they think they're going to hurt them. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know... It's not all, as I like to say, it's not all sunshine and lollipops. But, you know, I also look at everything as a learning experience. You know, okay, well, this happened. Make sure you always keep track of the car that you're driving. Make sure that it's, you know, 
you know, make sure the oil gets changed. Make sure you've always got extra strings. Whatever you do, don't, don't be talking to three women in the same bar and then watch them all start to fight over you type of thing, you know. It's like, you know, it, you know, and that's the other thing too. I mean, all the time I've been on the road, I mean, I've seen some of everything. It's nothing surprises me anymore. And, you know, good and bad. But, you know, it's like Blues Fest was, you know, they just had the Chicago Blues Fest here. Right. And, you know, every year I'll get, you know, emails or phone calls from people from Europe or people from out of town, you know, that are all coming that want to make sure that they get to see me before they, you know, before they leave. You know, and it's like, if nothing else, all of that, you know, all of the music I've played has been fun and, you know, made a lot of friends, <laughs> you know, that have helped out immensely, you know, with, you know, booking my own band gigs, stuff like that, you know. You know, it's, it's one of those where the blues community is a very small community and, you know, and the other thing, too, is being a nice guy is one of the good things to do, you know, no, no, nobody likes a jerk, <laughs> you know. Well, on that note, Tom, it was a real pleasure chatting yeah. with you. Thank well, you thank so much you, for Marco. doing this. Yeah. I know you're in between gigs. You're yeah. a busy man. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, anytime, anytime. Thanks a lot.